we're kicking off. Here we go. More is caught than taught. You've heard that? It's good to be reminded that more is caught than taught. Whether you're around your, your kitchen table, whatever role you're in, whether you're at work or just out, you know, people are always watching, right? Especially in Thomasville. Everybody, you always, even if you didn't see them, they saw you, right? And they'll let you know, I saw you yesterday at the grocery store. I saw what you were buying. I saw what you bought. More is caught than taught. Wherever you go, whatever you do, more is caught than taught. You know, I think some of the great Bible teachers, the great expositors of scriptures whose, whose names we know today, I think a lot of times people look at, at them as great teachers, and they celebrate them as great teachers, and they're, they're grateful for their teaching, and it's a wonderful thing. But every now and then, you get to know somebody whose um, who's teaching always uh, points past them, points beyond them, and inspires you to look up. And, and this is a, a quote from John Wood, who we're going to hear from tonight. That he described somebody I admire from his congregation um, as somebody who, when you looked at his life, you wanted to see, what's he looking at? You know, the way that somebody observes something in the sky and everybody starts lifting their faces to see, what, what is he looking at? There's a place in Acts chapter 4 where Peter is, is speaking with passion about who Jesus is and was when he walked among them and there's a conviction of the Spirit upon uh, the leaders of that day. And they didn't fully understand it. And later it, it says this, they noted that they, these men, Peter and James and John, that they had been with Jesus. They noted that they had been with Jesus. And so it was, it was a, a fragrance that they left of something awesome, something worthy of awe. John Wood, for me, has always been that kind of uh, a teacher. He's always pointed beyond himself. And you always wonder, what, what's he looking at? You, he inspires you to look past the teaching, past himself, and to get you not to just follow in his footsteps, but to seek what he is seeking. John Wood has been a, a pastor for uh, almost as long as we've held this mission conference, and um, almost exactly as long as we've held this mission conference. And um, he lost his wife uh, a couple of years ago. He's come out of retirement. He's come down from Annapolis, Maryland, where he's serving as a, an interim. He has, uh, he has three children, two, two girls and a boy, and they, they have given him uh, seven beautiful grandchildren. And uh, he served the church where I attended from the first, first Sunday I went to, um, to college. Somebody said, hey, we're going to Mitchell Road Presbyterian. Come with us. And I said, I'm, all right, I'm going. And I didn't just say that because my dad's listening to this. You know, I, freshman year in college, yeah, I started going right away. But he served uh, Cedar Springs Presbyterian Church, one of the largest churches in our denomination, for 28 years. 
And it is uh, just such a delight to have him here teaching us tonight and then uh, throughout the day on Sunday morning. Would you join me in welcoming John Wood? can't live up to that. I mean, that's wonderful to be reunited with Tim and, and with you, Abby. Um, Abby was my big surprise tonight. Abby was in her mother when I first met her parents. Her dad was our uh, worship leader at Cedar Springs. And uh, when she walked in tonight, I just did. <clears throat> so good to see you, honey. Tim, great to be back with you, and it's good to be back here. You all don't know me, but I've been here before in your lovely town and in this grand historic church. Uh, I wish that all historic churches had kept their buildings as well as you have, um, but what's much more important than the buildings is what you're doing here. Uh, I'm really preaching to myself tonight. I don't say that to be modest. I'm always preaching to myself because I always know I'm the biggest jerk in the room. And uh, when my wife was alive, she'd have been sitting out there going, yep, it's exactly true. Um, but particularly tonight, I'm, I, I apologized a little in advance to Tim. And then after that introduction, I thought, oh, my goodness. I don't know if I can do this, Lord, but I can't, and that's always the great thing about preaching. Uh, I once said to a friend of mine who had just, he brought, that's one of those moments in worship and preaching where uh, you just, you think, Lord, please, now, you know, restore all things, wipe away our tears. And I said to him afterward, huh, I could never do that. And he said, I could never do that. So... Let me pray again. Father, thank you that, uh, that this church is yours. It is a microcosm of the body of your son. And we are members of that body. And I pray that you will speak to us tonight what we most need to hear from you. Keep me out of the way, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, basically, you don't do new stuff on the road, you know. Um, so I've got my, over the years, 45 years, I've got my mission series and all these things. But I, I told Tim tonight, I've really had something much on my heart uh, because I, I think it's been stirred by a number of things. Friends saying, you know, just look around at our country. It, it seems beyond repair. Um, uh, you look at what's going on in the world, all the celebration at the beginning of the 90s, communism had fallen, Fukuyama said the end of history, we were so proud, we'd want it. and now, you know, the world is a complete and utter disaster, as it's always been, just, um, and clearly, the, the only possible answer, I think, in our country, too, is if if the church sees true revival, 
I'm not talking about the thing where you put up a sign, we're holding a... I'm talking about a movement of the Holy Spirit that changes lives, begins with people like me who are always teaching, but longing for a deeper experience of the reality of the things that we preach. When, when the Holy Spirit comes down and fills his people and at least for a little while makes us what we profess to be. And uh, that can have transformative effects on a culture if there's a real reformation of culture as well and all of that, you know all of that. And now with these little reports coming out of Asbury as they seem to out of Asbury every 10, 15 years, I wonder, Lord, are you going to do it again? Only you can, as he's often said. True revival can't be, can't be brought down or worked up. It's, it's a work of God. But God does historically answer the prayers of his people, even if it's a hundred-year prayer meeting like Zinzendorf's Hernhut, the Moravians. And that's what we need. So all of that is I want to talk about prayer tonight. Because we're so good at mission. Uh, we're, we're Americans. We, we can do, we have strategic plans. I'll never forget, I was at a Lausanne meeting with, uh, and I was sitting at the table with a group of brothers from uh, Latin America. And uh, several of them said, John, we'd love to have you come down and spend more time with us, but you've got to promise you won't bring any strategic plans <laughs> with you. You know, just come, be with us, listen to us. Don't, don't come with your American stuff. So we're doers, we're activists. I, I'm a fixer. When I see a problem, I want to fix it. And yet, that doesn't seem to be... There's a point for that, of course, and God gifts his people. But I think we're forever, even though we know better, we're forever turning it all around and getting everything in the wrong order. So what I want to do tonight is read a very familiar text at the end of Matthew chapter 9. Jesus, as you know, I love Matthew's gospel, and it, it shows him uh, going down to begin his identification with broken people by being baptized, a baptism of repentance. It is fitting that we should do so now. I'm, we're fulfilling all righteousness. And then you would think when the heavens had opened and the Holy Spirit had descended on him like a dove and the voice from heaven, his father had said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. You know, we think if we could ever have a, a, an experience like that, we would never face temptation again. What's the first thing that happens? The Holy Spirit has just come down on him. Then Matthew's gentle, he says, he led him into the wilderness in order to be tempted by the devil. I, it's Luke, I think, who uses ekbalo, doesn't he? One of you scholars out there. I think it's Luke who, in describing it, uses ekbalo. He cast him out. We don't translate it that way, but it's the same word that is used for Jesus casting out demons. The Spirit cast him out into the wilderness. Why? Because that's seminary, you see, You've got, you got to go into the wilderness with the devil and uh, face up to the lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, the pride of life, and do battle. And he graduates from that wilderness, which, of course, is a picture of, of what our rebellion has turned God's good garden into. He goes into our wilderness to find us. And 
he comes back, and I'm, I'm not going to get lost in the weeds too much here. Um, the great thing about being a speaker at a conference is, what are you going to do, fire me? Um, so, um, but I, I do want to pull it together here. Well, all of this is to lead up. When we get the picture in chapter 4 of Jesus' way of doing ministry, he goes, you know, we're told, he goes, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people walking in darkness, if he goes to the darkest place so that the light can shine brightest. How often am I looking for that in my ministry, the darkest places? He gathers around himself a group of people because me is, uh, we is always greater than me. Did I get it right? Yeah. It, you, you can't be a Lone Ranger Christian. You're not the body of Christ. I'm not the body of Christ. We're only the body of Christ together. And then he's, he, what, what's his picture of ministry? He teaches teaching the scriptures. He's proclaiming or preaching the good news of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. And he says, repent, repent. The king has come. Turn from your false idols. And he is healing. He's caring for the broken. Now, all of that is to say, when we get nine chapters later, he hasn't deviated one bit from his original picture of ministry. And he's giving this to us because this is for us. If someone asks you, what is the central theme of the Bible? I would argue that it is God on mission. God made us for himself. We ran from him. He set out to find us and bring us back home. And he gives us a picture of that consummation when he makes all things new. And it's not as uh, N.T. Wright likes to remind us, uh, to be insubstantial or, or disembodied spirits in an insubstantial heaven. He's made us for the new heaven and the new earth. We're going to be raised up. So that's the glorious picture he has entrusted that ministry to us. I was still quite moved from the, the singing. I'd never heard or sung one of those songs we sang tonight. But I found myself wanting actually to preach those texts because, I mean, when, when we sang that one, I don't remember the words, but, it, you know, there's no mountain that he won't climb, no wall that he won't, you know, surmount in order to find us. We always have to remember when we sing that that the only way that he climbs mountains and surmounts walls to find people now is through you and me. We are his only strategy. We're it. When he gave the commission, it was to us. We are to make disciples of all nations. So where do we start? Okay, finally got to it. Where do we start? And these are the final verses of Matthew 9. Jesus went through all the cities and villages, once again, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, now what would we have said? Therefore, we 
need to call together a group of Christian leaders to strategize what we're going to do about this. We need to notify the seminaries. We need more people in mission. Let's get some good, attractive, you know, sharp people with good. Now, all good stuff, stuff that may be down the pike, you know. But what does he say? This is the state of things. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So, okay. I'll, I'll make it three points, and then I'll stop. First of all, and, and it's just the text, he gives us the mission challenge, the mission opportunity, and then he highlights the mission problem, and then he gives us the astonishing solution to the problem. So, first of all, the mission opportunity as he said elsewhere, the fields are white unto harvest. He says, the harvest is plentiful. So I don't usually do this. I don't usually ever have a PowerPoint. A friend of mine, <laughs> I don't know if, well, I won't go into that. Anyway, he went, he, people always ask him when he does conferences, do you have a PowerPoint? He says, no, but I hope I won't be powerless and pointless. So uh, actually tonight, just I don't usually do this, but I did want to put up some statistics. Just because as we go into a mission conference, it's good again to remember. Now, let me say I know that you can do anything you want with statistics. Mark Twain said that it was Benjamin Disraeli who said, there are lies, there are damned lies, and there are statistics. And so you can't, but it, it gives us just a picture for a moment of the world that we're living in. Global population today, 8 billion. It just seems like yesterday that I was doing mission conferences and saying, you know, we're in a world with 7.5 billion. It's already rolled over. 8 billion. There are actually more global professing Christians, 2.5 seven is probably closer. But again, realize that vast <laughs> numbers of those would not even know what you meant if you said, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? This includes people who are, you know, grew up in places where you're baptized as a baby and maybe you hope to be married in the church and buried from the church. But still, two and a half billion, almost, almost a third of the world's population identifies as Christian. So is at least within range, you hope, of hearing the Christian story. There's the possibility right there because they're in a culture where you have those people, you also have what, whatever the size of the groups. You've got people that God has really touched and given a passion for the gospel. Global evangelicals, estimated at 660 million, that includes uh, the huge Pentecostal movement in Latin America. Um, and it's painful to me, uh, having treasured the word evangelical throughout my life, it's, it's a hard word to use right now because it's been so caught up in politics. People, if you say you're an evangelical, they make all kinds of assumptions about you. And so it's, but in the family here, you know what I mean. These are people with a high view of scripture who believe that salvation is through Jesus Christ, believe in mission. So about 660 million Global non-Christians, five and a half billion. Currently unreached people, about one and a half billion. 
again, people argue about the statistics, but I've averaged some of these out between people that were a bit different. Global people groups. Remember that in the Bible, when it talks about nations, it's not talking about nation states. It's talking about people groups, ethnic groups. The word in, in the Old Testament would be goyim. I was married to a Jewish woman, a believer, but she didn't like it when people said, oh, you're a completed Jew. She'd say, are you a completed Gentile? I mean, you know, we're all incomplete until we meet Jesus. But um, I know what goyim is because her family would say she married a goy. Um, but in the New Testament, the, that word was translated ethne, from which we get ethnic, ethnic group. So that's what these people groups are, ethnic groups. And 16,500 or so, and it's estimated that 7,000 are still unreached. That means hardly any work being done there. They don't have access to Christian materials that many have not even heard the name Jesus. So that's sort of the state of the, of the, let's stop right there because there's the harvest. It's huge. And we might be overwhelmed by it. We shouldn't be because it's estimated that by the end of the first century, even though the population of the world was only estimates very wildly, but from 200 million up to maybe 500 million. There were only, I, I think it was one Christian for every 350 non-Christians. The world turned over, and by 1900, the world population was still only 1.8 or 1.9 billion people. That's in 1900, just before I was born. Um, <laughs> And yet, in one century, it had gone up to 7.5 billion from 1.8, 1 1.9. During that time, when our tendency would be to think, it's getting away from us. How will we ever, you know, in pursuing the Great Commission, we, we've got a runaway train? No. During that time, mission was growing. The, the mission of Christ was growing so much faster even than the population growth so that we can say that in the world today, almost a third of the world's people would at least say, if asked, yes, I'm Christian. So don't despair, but that's the state. I say all of that because it's easy for us, as we think about mission, not, boy, I almost said it. Oh, Lord, forgive me almost said not to think strategically. See, I'm, I, I have the sickness, and it's deep. Um, but it's easy to look at the world and not be very wise about it and simply to say, you know, we're doing this good work. Um, you know, we get, hear these great stories of what God is doing. We want to be encouraged by that. We, we want to celebrate every partnership. You guys have these wonderful partners that are with you, and you want to be all in. But they're out there, and they see this world in a way that maybe we tend not to. You say, well, what can I do about it? Ah, we're going to get to that. What about Jesus saying the laborers are few? Now, if these are the numbers, glo global overseas missionaries, including Catholic, uh, of, of which there are many, 
Eastern Orthodox, of which there are almost none, and uh, Protestants would be four, about 430,000. Only 140,000 are Protestant missionaries. Now, you think about that. One and a half billion people who are beyond the reach of the gospel, even. 5.5 billion people who are not Christians. They would be, you know, followers of Islam, Buddhism, one of the forms of Hinduism, or nuns, or other, other things. But huge numbers, only 140,000 Protestant missions. And I would, some of the missionaries here could answer this better than I, but I would think that maybe only a third of those would be evangelical, because counted in that are so many people from what we call the mainline churches who are wonderful, lovely people. Thank God for them. They're out there doing good works, good things, but not church planning or gospel work for the most part because the view of so many now is that our job and mission is just to dialogue with other religions, to, you know, share what we have and you share and we're going to show you how to do good things. And we need to be doing those good things. That was part of Jesus' ministry. Anyway, all of that is to say, I think that the, the actual mission force of people that are going out to fulfill the Great Commission's call to make disciples, plant churches, where you teach people to, you baptize the men and teach them to obey all that God has commanded, are fewer than probably we even dare estimate. Um, I don't want to labor too much more on this, but we'll just, we'll just leave it at that. You can flip that off. Thank you. Okay. So, that's the situation. What are we to do? And Jesus says, pray earnestly. The Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. First thing, hardest for me, pray earnestly. He's not talking about, you know, I've got my list that I pray every morning and I check that off, you know, my family, uh, you know, my favorite sports teams. <laughs> you know, Lord, let us have a good year this year. Um, it's our turn. Equity. Uh, and missions, yes. And I've just got to confess to you, uh, one of the, one of the la I think it was the last song, was, you know, when I'm in your presence, I, I'm exegeting I don't remember the words, but when I'm in your presence, I want to stay here. This is where I want to be. But then we also sang what we in the old hymnals used to call hymns of aspiration, not the kind that chokes you, but that things that you aspire to. And it said something like, you are, you are all I want. You are all I want. Well, I can only sing that as an aspiration, saying, Lord, I want you to be all that I want. Maybe I'm the only person in the room of whom this is true, but I want a lot more than just Jesus. I don't want to want a lot more. I know that he's all that I need, but I don't keep that edge very long. I love something John Piper said. He said, 
I don't wake up a Christian. I have to become one all over again every day. I mean, he didn't mean he was, thought he lost his salvation, but it's just this, this is a battle to be the people of God. And I want to pray earnestly for mission. I was just, I, I, I'm up in Annapolis, as Tim said, but I got down to Chattanooga because my son doesn't look anything like me. He's this big, powerful, was a, a Marine uh, infantry sergeant. And uh, he's, he's really had a, t he leads these Spartan endurance races and everything just looks like a absolute stud. Well, he is, but he's had terrible problem in his stomach that the, and esophagus that they have worked on, worked on good. And they did a surgery last Friday and then it didn't work. They cut something and they, so they had to redo Sunday. And he's been in just lots of pain and was for a little bit there and in a bad way. They had him in intensive care to see this powerful guy lying. Let me tell you, I tell you all of that to say, I know how to pray earnestly. I have been praying earnestly for my son, for God to heal him. I don't need to work that up because I love him with all my heart. And so it's there. And what, as I come to you, I'm just coming honestly, why don't I, why am I not as passionate as well? That's right, we should be passionate about our families, our kids. But why don't I have that same passion for the things that I know God cares most about? The salvation of his children. I care about my son. He cares about his children throughout this world. And he's saying, there, it, there they are. You're my only plan to reach them. It's only as you climb that mountain, as you tear down that wall, only in that way will they know how much I love them. Why? Why can my heart become cold so fast? Why can I find myself thinking, oh, it's, you know, Friday morning. I think we have a prayer for mission time. Okay, Lord, help me here. You know, got I mean, sometimes wanting to and always grateful when there, but maybe I've been, have I been too open? Forgive me. Um, but why is it? And I realize it's a defect in my entire prayer life. Because prayer is not something where we are trying to move God to do, to get him on our agenda. It's where he wants us in his presence to get on his agenda. He, we, we too often pray, I too often pray, trying to change trying to convince God that this is real. You know, if you have a few minutes, I have some suggestions. Um, instead of realizing I'm running all over the place, I've got to shut up, get on my face before the Lord, and let him align me with his purposes, which in the end are the only things that lead to life. Don't we tend in the church to make our plans and then call prayer meetings to ask God to bless them. I mean, that's how we are. Lord, if we could just spend the next hour with you and show you this thing that we've put together and 
break through it point by point rather than just saying, we're not ready to move until you've moved us and until you move us together. And that only comes from deep prayer. I have known those times by God's grace. And oh, they are sweet. And the sweetest thing is you usually don't have them alone. You usually have them when you're praying with someone else. In fact, the Puritans were so wise, they said if you are going through the season in your own life where God seems distant and your prayers are dry, don't pray alone. Pray with brothers and sisters and your heart will come alive because then you're with the body of Christ and Christ is there with you and ministering to you through his people. Okay, you got the point. We all get the point. We all, any one of you could have stood up and, and said this. We all know this. But I would contend that the reason that the church is absolutely exploding and on fire, I know there's a lot of wildfire, and I've, the Cedar Springs used to let me go spend eight weeks a year on mission, uh, speaking at various places around the world. And I've seen some incredible things that God's doing. And I've seen a lot of wildfire where you just go, whew, this is not going to end well. Um, but where God's Spirit is moving, there's nothing like it. But it's because people pray in a different way. And maybe we can't pray like that except when we're in trouble. I don't pray for my children like that except when they're in distress or my grandkids. It's when there's a crisis. Maybe we're so doggone comfortable and our lives are so, you know. It's remarkable. You go, you know, you, you go to in, in an affluent American school and you see a lot of depressed-looking kids. You go to Africa, you go to China, you go to India, you see kids on the street beaming, you know, hungry, maybe, in trouble. And yet, we, we've been just in the church. We're, we've got it so together and we can do, okay, this is what I'm trying to say. We can do so much good without the Holy Spirit, you know, because we've got the resources. And so if it's a good thing and it's a biblical thing, we can do it. People, people who don't have what we have learn to pray, I think, in ways that we don't. And I don't want to have to learn, go to that school to learn to pray. So I'm saying, Lord, please, <laughs> teach me to pray. Teach me to pray more deeply. And again, in the times when I have, okay, this is too confessional, sorry. Um, I'll end with this. What happens when God's people pray? It, it's Sometimes you don't see it. You're praying for the next generation. Like I mentioned, the, uh, the Moravians at Hernhut. Uh, you, do you know the story of Count Zinzendorf back in the 1730s, 20s, 30s, 
Uh, he was from my uh, uh, family with tremendous resources and considered good birth. So the king put him over a particular area after his dad died. And so Zinzendorf, Zinzendorf acquired a, a lot of land because he knew that there were, he was a pietist within Lutheran, as I won't get into all that, but he, his heart was on fire for the Lord. And he knew that there was a group of people, the Moravians and others, who were suffering under the established church because their hearts were on fire for the Lord. So he began inviting them to come and live there, and he could protect them. But he found that they were all fighting with each other, all their theological divisions. And so he called them all together and sat them down and said, let's list all of the things that you hold in agreement. So they made a list of all the things that they agreed on. And he said, let's have a covenant to be a, a, brother, a brotherhood based on our agreements and then start praying together. They started praying together every day. They realized that God was changing them as they prayed, and so they decided that they would always have a small group of people 24-7 praying. That prayer meeting lasted 100 years, never stopped. And during that time, God used that group of people to light fires all over the world. You know the story, John Wesley's testimony. He was an Anglican priest, he and his brother Charles and George Whitfield at Oxford were members of the Holy Club who were derogatorily named the Methodists because they were methodical in their spiritual pursuits. They were trying to save themselves. And they were insufferable. Did all kinds of good things. So the Wesleys went to Georgia because it was, you know, just the backside of the universe. Uh, there was nothing here. It was they'd sent prisoners here down in Savannah area. So they said, that's a place where we can go. And it was a catastrophe. John Wesley fell in love with a young woman, and when she didn't love him back, he barred her from communion. And her family, I mean, it was a colossal disaster. He had to get on a ship and head back before they, you know, made him disappear. And on the way back, there was a horrible storm, and he was terrified that he was going to die knowing that he was lost, that he hadn't managed to save himself here. And there was a little group of Moravians standing over in the midst of the storm, singing hymns and talking, you know. And he wanted to know, what do they have? And it was through that that eventually he ended up at one of their meetings at Aldersgate. And his heart was strangely warmed as he heard uh, Paul's letter to the Romans being explained. the Great Awakening. I mean, you, you look at prayer movements and you see that sometimes it doesn't come quickly, but it comes. The story John Hyde, that praying Hyde, I'm trying to remember the group. There was a group not too many years ago that went up into one of the regions in the Punjab wanting to try to preach the gospel. And they would go to some towns and they'd be stoned and chased away, and other towns almost greeted them the way that Annapolis greeted me. I don't know what was going on at this church that I'm serving now before I got there. My kids said, how, did, how, how are they treating you? I said, 
they've greeted me the way the Parisians greeted the Allies when they liberated them from the Nazis. I don't, I don't know what, but that's how these towns would greet these church planters. Welcome them in, a church would be planted. And they're trying to figure out what's the difference between these towns. When they got back, one of the guys was reading the diaries left by praying John Hyde from a generation before. And he'd gone on a prayer mission. And he tracked it. And every place where he had stayed and spent a number of days just praying for God's Spirit to come on that group. And he never saw it happen. But those were the villages that welcomed them with open arms. So you and I, to, to pray and not lose heart, knowing that we don't have to see the answers. God hears those prayers. Jesus says, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. That's who we're praying to. He's the Lord of the harvest. He is sovereign, and he is loving, and it is his good pleasure to save the lost through us, the likes of us. It's incredible. I used to tell the people at Cedar Springs, if you really knew me, you wouldn't want me to be your pastor. If I really knew you, I wouldn't want you to be a member of this church, you know. I mean, but God knows everything about us, and the one who knows us best loves us most. And he just says to us, look, the world is a disaster. It's a mess. The world needs me. The world needs to be reconnected to the God who made us for himself. But the only way that the right people are going to go is if you pray them out. And I mentioned that word ekbalo, cast out. That's the word that Jesus uses again in the text I read from chapter 9. He says, pray the Lord of the harvest. And he says, to cast out the way that you would cast out. He'll, he'll throw them out there. I, I remember we had, okay, this is it, not a problem. We had this lovely couple who had a very successful surgical practice in town. And, uh, you know, young kids. And they came to us and said, um, we've taken, we're going to be teaching surgery uh, at Tenwick outside of Nairobi. You know, we've sold our home. We're selling our practice. We're giving away everything. And we were like, oh, my goodness, you know, we want to be all in. We want to support you. They turned around and looked at me, and they said, this is your fault. <laughs> you know, we told our kids, that, well, of course it wasn't, but because they'd been listening to the Word. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit cast them out, see. As people prayed, Lord, there's a need over there. They were cast out. So let's start this 49th conference by realizing that God would have us pray in a whole new way. And not just alone, together. Because when you pray together, God hears and he answers. And he has promised to do exceedingly, abundantly above all that we might ask or imagine. Father, Forgive me for speaking so badly tonight, but thank you that this word is true. You've shown us. You've shown us what to do about this broken world, where to start. And I want to be 
all in on this. But I know my inconstant heart. Maybe, maybe when I get back up to Annapolis, I'll get caught up in other things and again kind of lose my mojo. And I don't want to, Lord. And I know your people here don't want to. So may we pray as we've never prayed before that you, the Lord of the harvest, will send out workers into the field. In Jesus' name, amen.